everyone. Welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast.、Uh, my name is Hong Mei Li Byerly. I'm a BA biologist at the North Carolina State University. So today we're very lucky to have Dr. Hans Hoffman from University of Texas at Austin to、um, talk about fish behavior, neurobiology, and neuroscience in general. So thank you so much, Hans, for coming to our show. Thank you for having me.、Um, so I know your your lab and you are doing a really fascinating research focused on on cichlid fish. Could you please give us a kind of a brief、uh, introduction on what research you're doing and why is it important? Sure. Yeah, so our research program is pretty broad.、Uh, as you already mentioned,、uh, a good part of our research, not all of it, uses African cichlid fishes as a model system. And the kinds of questions that we like to ask of them have to do with the, you know, the neural and molecular basis of social behavior and how that behavior might have evolved and the underlying mechanisms. So we are. Particularly interested in、uh, behavior that has to do with social dominance or with parental behavior.、Uh, we have also looked at、um, behavior related to reproduction, and、uh, our approach is to、uh, <clears throat> to set up ex- behavioral experiments that mimic the situation in nature, and、uh, then use different neurobiological and molecular and genomic tools to understand, you know. What in the brain is actually happening that allows these animals to、uh, display these kinds of pretty complex behavior? Cichlid fishes are interesting and useful in this context not only because they are easy to breed and easy to maintain,、uh, but also because they show a very interesting diversity of、uh, behavior. They have pretty complex social recognitions. For example, they recognize each other individually. And、mm-hmm. furthermore, there are many, many different species of cichlid fishes,、uh, especially from East Africa, that are very closely related genetically and evolutionarily, but are quite different in terms of、uh, the behavior or the social system that they have. And so, we can use、mm-hmm. this kind of diversity to、uh, get a better understanding of how the different kinds of behavior that they show comes about. In terms of their social interaction, and for example, like social cognition, and do how do fish recognize their their own um the their own group? Like how do they tell the difference from a stranger、uh, fish from their own group? Do they have certain like cues, color cues, or vision cues, or different type of Pheromone cues to help them to recognize. Yeah, so this is a is a really good question, and we don't know all the answers.、Uh, we know what kind of sensory modalities the fish use、uh, to communicate with each other. They, for the most part, are highly visual, and so there are a number of different visual or color cues on the body surface, certain markings uh, that uh, they pay attention to.、Um, To which ones are used for individual recognition, we don't know. Those experiments have not been done, although we have some ideas. 
We know increasingly also that chemical communication is very important and that mm-hmm. uh, especially the males release a cocktail of metabolized steroid hormones into the water that may not only communicate uh, information about their social status or reproductive state, but potentially also give information about their, you know, who they are as individuals. And finally, <clears throat> there's some pretty fascinating recent work that shows that there's also a lot of acoustic communication. So these fish have ways mm. of generating sounds, uh, for example, with their swim bladder, or sometimes mm-hmm. with their jaws. It depends a little bit on the species and how they do that. And uh, we know that females pay attention to that when they choose a mate. Uh, we don't know whether it is used for individual recognition. Those studies have not been done. Uh, but there's a lot of information exchanged, and uh, some of those cues are probably important for this more sophisticated social cognition, such as individual recognition, but we don't know yet exactly how they do this. Good question. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so it's really intriguing to see more um, cues we're detecting now. For example, the sound and their um, audio cues and and I can imagine in the water uh, environment, sometimes it's, so I'm not sure, do you think in the water environment, it, it, it's actually really quiet in the environment, or it could be noisy from other creatures and other animals? Uh, it's quite <laughs> noisy. <clears throat> it is quite noisy. It depends a little bit on the specific habitat where you are. But uh, a lot of a lot of fish, as well as other animals, uh, generate quite a lot of noise underwater. We know that coral reefs are very noisy places. Now, these fish are freshwater fish. They are mostly found in lakes and rivers. Um, but again, it's it's quite noisy. There is some work on um, studying to which extent anthropogenic noise, for example, from outboard engines. Um, or you know, oil platforms or so can actually affect um, the the behavior of the animals and to which extent it might disturb them. Um, that is yeah. also an interesting, interesting aspect. But uh, underwater landscapes are noisier than we often think they are. Yeah, I see. Um, so out of it, I, I think your lab is investigating different type of behavior, you know, for example, the female mating choice or their aggression behavior. So out of different phenotypes of their behavior, which one is their favorite? Huh. That's a good question. I think that changes with the seasons. Um, I don't have uh, a particular what I'm What I'm particularly excited about now currently is uh, the kind of collaborative behavior that we have begun to study in, in these this particular species of fish where we were able to show that um, territorial males, so males that set up territories and display to each other and drive others mm-hmm. away, uh, and they use those territories largely to attract females for mating, that those males will actually not only fight with each other, but uh, as they establish a relationship as territorial neighbors, will become less mm-hmm. and less aggressive towards each other. <clears throat> but in fact, when an intruder comes in who's trying to usurp uh, a neighbor's territory, 
they will help each other out. So they will collaborate uh, to defend uh, the territories. And that is something that has often been postulated in the literature uh, across animals that set up territories in, in this fashion and that they would help each other. It's been demonstrated behaviorally in very, very few cases because it's hard to do. Uh, and we have been able to do that, but we really did this because we wanted to get at the neural basis and see to which extent, uh, you know, cooperative behavior has a particular signature in the brain and where in the brain this kind of behavior is being regulated. Uh, we've made mm -hmm. quite a bit of progress on that recently. So right now I would say, you know, cooperative behavior is what I'm most excited about. Hmm. Yeah. That's, yeah. So that's very interesting because to protect the territory is important for the male um, to survive. But on the other hand, uh, if they can collaborate with their neighbors and with other um, close by, they could gain uh, more fitness, right, overall. So, <clears throat> yeah, that's so, yeah the idea. I think it's a strategy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's certainly the idea. Um, we have not found this, that they actually have more fitness, but um, that is, the interpretation, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and talk about brain. So, I know you have a, a really good study to look at, actually, uh, evolutionary conservative region of the brain across different fish species. So, what is that particular region you're studying? Why you think that's important? Yeah, so... So that is another part of the lab uh, where we look across vertebrates, basically across 450 million years of evolution when you and I and these fish had the last common ancestor. Uh, and we look across um, different lineages of vertebrates, fishes, uh, we look at amphibians, particularly frogs, mm -hmm. look at birds. Uh, we also look at small mammals uh, in collaboration mm -hmm. with other investigators to first delineate the kinds of uh, brain regions and neuron populations that are important in uh, what we call social decision-making, uh, basically brain regions and neural circuits that allow animals, social animals, to show context-appropriate behavior in a social context. And we have found <clears throat> some years ago that these neural substrates uh, seem to be quite conserved across vertebrates, suggesting that they are evolutionarily ancient. Um, mm -hmm. And so we're doing that because we would like to understand better you know, to which extent species that have evolved particular behavior phenotypes independently, um, for example, social dominance behavior, may actually have shared uh, neural and molecular mechanisms that govern those um, those those behaviors, and uh, this is, you know, more generally what can be referred to as the comparative approach, where we compare in a systematic manner uh, different species across phylogeny, um, uh, across the evolutionary tree, to uh, gain insight into the mechanisms, the neural and molecular mechanisms that govern behavior, uh, and then come up with, you know, new uh, new candidate genes or candidate pathways that might play a role that otherwise we might not be able to find. So the way I look at the comparative approach is, is that it has a really great potential 
and, and others certainly have demonstrated that as well, to <clears throat> give us insights that might be just as strong as doing experiments, uh, laboratory experiments, uh, on a, a single species, and that these two approaches, the experimental approach and the comparative approach, are quite complementary to each other. Um, do you have any tradition or annual activities for lab members to participate? Yeah, so we we have a number of things that we do. We do regular lab outings. Um, where the entire lab, you know, we may go into the hill country and go wine tasting, for example, or we sometimes go bowling here at the student union. We do those kinds of things for people to relax a little bit and, uh, and get to know each other in a different kind of environment. Um, we occasionally have parties or we go to happy hour together. Um, so those are important um, events. We do have Usually when we have a visitor in town, uh, lab lunches where we uh, have lunch together with the visitor. Uh, and then we have every week two kinds of meetings. We have, like most labs, a regular lab meeting where, uh, you know, we present progress reports or discuss particular papers, um, those kinds of things. But then, and that's every Friday afternoon, and then every Tuesday at noon, um, you know, Tuesday here in Austin, Texas, is referred to as Taco Tuesday because that's when people eat tacos. Tacos are a big thing here in this town. Uh, yeah. We have lunch together, we have lunch together and we, uh, we do what we call Catch of the Week, uh, where everybody gets five minutes to present a paper that they've recently read, a new paper to share with the lab um, and, you know, tell us, what is about, why it is interesting, whether they agree with the interpretation yeah. of the author and so on. And that's really useful because it's a it's good practice for uh, concisely summarizing a complex research study, but it also kind of distributes the reading of the literature across the lab. It's a really uh, efficient approach to to read, you know, more papers in at, at the same time when you get together, but also you can um, reflect and discuss the paper, why is it important, and what's the significant findings here. So you, you so you know, you study the African uh, fish, cichlid fish. So you probably had a lot of travel, uh, a lot of trips to different parts of the world. So is there any uh, really interesting travel stories? Uh, yeah, I've been. Of course, I've been to a lot of different places. I've traveled a lot. I used to do quite a lot of field work on these fish that we study, mostly in Lake Tanganyika in East Africa um, on the Tanzanian side. And, yeah, when you do field work in Africa, you know, you can always tell adventure stories. Uh, there is always something that breaks or something that uh, surprises you or that you didn't expect. Something not working, right? Yeah, and if you cannot fix it there, you won't have it. Uh, you cannot just go somewhere else and buy it or, you know, order it or so. It's just not going to happen. Uh, so you become, you know, pretty resourceful and inventive. Um, the, you also, because you're in Africa, you encounter all kinds of animals, and you learn, for example, that when you do a lot of research diving in the lake, um, that you need to be prepared to uh, encounter crocodiles. Um, 
Ideally, you can avoid them, of course, uh, because they can potentially be dangerous. Um, there, there are some interesting snakes there that are quite poisonous, like underwater cobras. Uh, these lakes are very unusual in that they have a lot of species that only exist there and nowhere else, um, which we call endemic. And uh, I think there are two species of underwater cobras in Lake Tanganyika, and they, they are not in the water all the time. Uh, you can see them you know, lying along the shore and so on sometimes. But they do go mm-hmm. underwater. They're territorial. They usually hunt fish, but when they feel threatened or surprised, they may actually bite the human being, um, which is quite dangerous. You have about two hours, um, you know, before you die. And uh, so you need to deal with those kinds of things and be careful about it. And yeah. I took a couple of close encounters with those snakes. Yeah, um, with the snakes. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and then, you know, I get to travel a lot also to present our research at different places, um, either at university departments or at conferences and workshops internationally. Uh, I've done this pretty much on all continents except for Antarctica. Um, although I would yeah. have to go to So I think as a, you know, field ecologist, uh, oftentimes we go to the field and with different, like a lot of times we had to deal with um, unexpected situations. So you have to be really flexible and adjustable. And you also need to be a MacGyver type of person, try to make something working the last minute because you spend all the time and money to fly to the field and you want to get um, the experiment going and uh, achieve the goal of data collecting. So, yeah. So I think a lot yeah. of the a lot of field biologists are are also uh, handy and they they have new high um, abilities and different abilities to get working. So as a scientist, you you write a lot and you probably also read a lot. So is there any book you like to recommend? Well, I don't read nearly as much as I as I would like to. I don't have as much time to read or I don't make as much time as maybe I should. Um, you know, there are, there are, of course, a lot of really good books out there. And I, you know, without picking any particular one, I do like uh, well-written, you know, science books. Um, and one that I read recently that I thought was really well done was Ed Young's book on, you know, I contain multitudes on kind of the role of the microbiome in our body. And I'm, I'm mentioning that not only because he's a really good writer and it's just a really well done book and, and I learned quite a bit from it, but uh, it also brings home that, you know, this microbiome field is currently a little bit overhyped and there is a lot of work going on, a lot of money going into it, and it's not always clear how useful the science really is or how interesting. And eventually that will shake out, um, and there's certainly a lot of interesting things that are being done. Um, And then I also like to read, uh, you know, certain kinds of science fiction. And if anybody has not read it, I think they need to read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. and 
and that's just our, our classic. Yeah, I like that book too. Very entertaining, and so um, and you know, if, if nothing else, then you will eventually figure out what the meaning of life is. It's just the simple number forty-two. Um, yeah. And <laughs> so you know, it it, it um, you know it can make fun of itself, which is good. Uh, and you know, I, I, otherwise, I I end up reading a lot of manuscripts and grant proposals uh, as a reviewer. Uh, some of which are great and wonderful, and some are just really painful. <laughs> but it's hard. I, so. I think that's another part of the professional life of that a lot of people may not be aware of. Being a, yeah. a scientist and a researcher, we oftentimes um, volunteer to review a lot of manuscripts before they get published in the journal. And we also volunteer to read proposals for grants for grant agencies. And that and th- those things take a lot of time. I think they're they're very time consuming. Oftentimes, they're you know. 20, 30 pages of a document, and you have to read. That's right. And you need to read it carefully, and, you know, you you need to give uh, substantive and constructive feedback. Uh, yeah, so I have I have this kind of self-made policy that, you know, for every paper I publish, I should uh, review at least three papers Um to, because, you know, there are usually two or three people who review my papers. And um, and then similar for grant proposals. You know, I submit a lot of grant proposals, and I expect that people read them carefully and give me good feedback. And so I'm okay. trying to same and, and have some balance there. But it is a lot of mm-hmm. work, and it's really unpaid. That's clear. Mm-hmm. So uh, in the end, let's say, like, the kind of look at the future with the current environment for science, um, technology, and research in general in the United States, as well as in the rest of the world, how do you see the future uh, directions for um, life science studies, or particularly, let's say, focused on the neurobiology and neuroscience and brain studies? How do you see the future? Yeah, so, you know, you can hear all kinds of uh, things from people like the sky is falling or it won't be that bad. So there's the whole range here. Um, And there are some countries that, you know, investing a lot in science right now and, um, you know, like some European countries uh, and, and some Asian countries. And one advice you might get is is to get a position there because you have a much better chance of potentially uh, doing the research that you know is important and then you need to do. Um, and and I always encourage, especially American students and postdocs, to go abroad, uh, just also to grow as individuals and to see something else because Americans, you know, it's a very kind of an insular culture. And um, and so the current environment is certainly challenging. Uh, it has been for quite some time. The funding rates are very low, and it doesn't look like they will imp- improve anytime soon. Uh, they may even get worse. Um, and it, um, I would say that 
Um, and there is a lot of uncertainty, but I also would say this is not just true for you know biologists or academic scientists. There's just a lot of uncertainty in society in general. There are very few people who can look at uh, ahead in their life and say, well, I know what I'm going to do in 10 years or 20 years. Those days are over, and uh, everybody has to be flexible and resourceful and, and make the best of it. And so we are not, you know, nobody, we're not being singled out for that. I think that's just a societal phenomenon. And, and that has been now amplified in that there is a lot of uncertainty, not only for individuals, but, you know, across countries, across societies. There's clearly some sort of a big transformation happening across the world. And, uh, you know, to which extent it will be a major disruption uh, or not, we don't know at this point, and we can only speculate. Uh, my my takeaway from all this is that if you are really passionate about science, if you really think you can make a good contribution, and if this is what you want to do, you know, you still have to keep in mind that we, it is an amazing job that we have. Uh, you know, we can work with our minds, we can do a variety of things, and yes, we have to be able to uh, fund it, and we may need to become more resourceful and creative with that, and yes, uh, there may not be as many positions for academic scientists as maybe we wish there would be, um, but there are still positions. And and one thing that uh, keeps is worth remembering is is that a large proportion of the academic workforce uh, will be retiring or is or has already started retiring and will be over the next 15, 20 mm -hmm. years. All the boomers, which is a huge mm -hmm. number. Of and even if not all of those positions get replaced with, you know, smaller budgets and so on, a good number will need to get replaced because we need to teach all these students that come into the university. So, um, you know, I think I'm always an optimist. I think the situation is not quite as dire as some people might think it is. And, um, and but you need to be resourceful. You need to be very flexible. And you need to be really passionate about it. If you're not passionate, I don't think you can do it. But that's almost true in, 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 our, in that's true in a lot of other areas of life too. Yeah, yeah. So I think not only for doing science, but doing any different profession, um, you you have to. Most cases, it's the best uh, situation that you have a, a career that you're really uh, passionate about. You really yeah. like it, and so then you are among the people who are highly, highly motivated, and and work really hard and focus on that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so okay. Thank you so much, uh, Hans. I really appreciate your time and your your uh, opinions on on the science related, and wish uh, all the best luck of your fish research. So, thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. I very much enjoyed it. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much.